we have been the last several weeks on this idea of what it looks like to live a disciplined life. And what we've told you uh, really throughout the duration of 2022 is that if nothing changes, then what? Then nothing changes. And so we've been looking at past hurts and the Bible and how God changes lives and, and, and uses these traumatic experiences in our life for his glory and for his good and he uses it for our testimony. And so what we did is we looked at past hurts for several weeks at New Life. We did a whole sermon series around people in the Bible who've had wounds and traumatic experiences who came out to live a life that exalted and glorified Jesus Christ. And so then now what we said is now that we've worked at the past, we're going to look towards the future. And if nothing changes, then nothing changes because we want to be disciples who look and live differently and there are these things that disciples do. They live in a way that's different. And so we had literature that we placed in your hand for a small cost of $10. It's like I'm plugging that. We don't make any money off that. We have these books that we've been selling. And, and I told you guys the other week, I said, it's like we've had books for sale a lot of times at the church. I don't think we've ever sold more than 50 or 75 copies of a book. And I think now we're in the 300s with this book, Discipline of a Godly Man and the Disciplines of a Godly Woman. And we've been walking through this as a way for change to happen. And as we enter in today and next week, we're going to be on this topic of disciplines of a godly marriage. And so maybe you saw that on social media and you thought, I'm going to come to church today because I need to hear that. Or maybe you had no idea. But if you've been following the book, uh, you know that this sermon was coming. And then next week, we're going to be talking to women. And so I would ask you to take some notes. I'm going to start off with an analogy that could get a bit dangerous, and obviously it, it might work. If it doesn't, there will not be this analogy at the second service. So you guys are the, the pilot study, the test dummies. Uh, what is really difficult in life as far as sports? What's the most difficult sport there is? Say it louder. Motocross, I wouldn't know. Golf, is there anything harder than a golf swing? The answer for this analogy is no, okay? Someone said it, so we're going to run with it. So what I've done is uh, I brought on stage this Adams Golf Club, five foot, and I want to make sure I have enough space for this because this could go really wrong. I honestly, this could absolutely bomb. But uh, who in here golfs? Like who in here breaks 100 on 18? No one? Oh, wow, you guys are terrible. All right, so we just want to make sure we have enough room here. Yes. We're going to place a ball right here for the next service if the swing goes well, and we're going to go right to the sound booth with it. But I brought this club on stage because I had this epiphany when I was at the YMCA yesterday with my son that golf and marriage are not that far apart. And so the reason why is this. There's like all these analogies you can run with with golf and marriage, but, but I have just a couple. And the reason that I think even just relationships in general, and this is for men, so I thought, well, men, you know, I know women golf too, but men really like to get out there and golf. The reason I feel that there's such this common bond between golf and specifically your golf swing in marriage is this, is that it's counterintuitive. What feels like is right, what feels right oftentimes in your relationships is the wrong way to approach it. And how many of you have started golfing like in the last five years? I didn't start golfing until I was in my 20s. I didn't grow up golfing. I grew up playing baseball, 
on really a subpar level. But I learned this mechanics of a, of a baseball swing that didn't transfer well into golf. And golf is like that too when it comes to your swing. What feels right is oftentimes wrong. And there's like a hundred things. I actually consulted my golf coach, Tyler, who plays a saxophone, about what a what golf swing should look like. I said, what are the mechanics of a golf swing? He said, well, you need to have the right width of your feet. You need to have the right ball position. You need to have the right grip on the club. You have to keep your head down when you swing. You have to aim at your target. And so for my personality, I go by the old school, just grip it and rip it, right? And, and even when you set this swing up, man, it's like, I would think that you would just kind of approach it where you're off this foot, but no, you have to be off the back leg, and you have to bring it up straight. Am I doing this right, golfers? And you have to keep your head what? Down, and then you can't force the club swing down because then you're going to have a slice or you're going to chunk the grass, and it has to flow freely, and it's not how hard you swing. It's just an easy swing, and then boom, you know, the, the follow-through. I didn't practice this. And the belt buckle. Are you tracking? There's literally like a million things you have to do right just to be okay. But there are two things I was playing. I was like, maybe I'll just take like some full swings and scare everybody. I'm going to stop there while I'm ahead. But there are absolutely two things that screw us up with a bad swing. And here's where I thought, and I tested this on my son, is this a good analogy? And he didn't really respond. He just kept lifting. But, he, but here's where I think it tracks. There are two reasons your swing stinks. Reason number one, you learned the wrong way to swing a club from someone else. And maybe you had a dad or a mom that golfed with you, and they were terrible. Or, or maybe you watched something on YouTube that was just terrible advice. And so the first reason you stink with your swing, assuming you're athletic enough to have a swing, is that you learn from someone else all of the bad habits through a period of time that have taken you where you're at. And then the second reason that you have a terrible swing is that you tried to figure it out on your own, okay? And what we ask at New Life is, how's that working for you? And the connection point is this. The reason that you come into this place, and maybe you recently came to Christ and you're trying to do things differently because the Holy Spirit's now working in your life, but you bring in this baggage that we've talked about pretty much all of 2022 and past wounds and relationship wounds. The two reasons you have maybe a bad marriage or a tough marriage or marriage after marriage after marriage or relationship after relationship after relationship are the same two reasons your golf swing's broke. You learn the wrong way from someone else or you tried to figure it out on your own. And the reason I bring that up is the original point is that just like your golf swing, your relationship that's supposed to be so great in your head and how you play that out is counterintuitive. Those things that you think are the right way are actually lead you down, leading you down a very, very dark path. And so here's what you do in golf. And I need some just amens if you think this is true. I feel, I feel like I don't know if this analogy is working. You go to the course... You know, you don't have the right mechanics. You're sending it into the trees. I'm slicing this way. I'm a lefty. And you're doing that over and over and over again, specifically in the prideful heart of a man. What's the first thing that you deduct is the problem? Thank you. Amen, right? I have another club. I'm not going to go get it. What you do in your golf terribleness 
is you slice it, you chunk it, and then you go to, you know, Dunham's or whatever, and you see like a $400 driver, right? And you deduct in your prideful manly state, the problem must be the club. And so you take this old Adams five wood, tight lies that I actually got at Fleet Farm in like 2002, you chuck it in the trash, you drop 400 bucks, and you go out and you have the same terrible slice with the same problems because the club, are you tracking this analogy? Do you know where this is going? The club is not the problem. This is what we do in our relationships. We don't follow God's design for it. We try to figure it out on our own. We listen to people that we should never be listening to via pick your media outlet. And then we wonder why it's so bad. And instead of owning it, instead of humbling ourselves and saying, God, you're probably the one who has this figured out. We don't buy a new club. We buy a new person. We trade them in with the same slice and the same mechanics and the same brokenness. And then we wonder why we're in the same situation compounded yet again. Where divorce rates jump from the first, first marriage to a 50% chance of divorce to 60 to 70% by the time you're on your second. And so as we spend the next two weeks on this discipline, I, I, should this be a second service thing? Be honest. Okay, we'll use it. That was Greg's guitar. That could have been bad. As we jump into... These next two weeks, I want you to be thinking through this paradigm that the reason this thing is broke is because I'm trying to do it on my own and I'm listening to really, really bad counsel. And the inverse of that is we don't do any of life on our own. We do it under the submission of the Father in community through the power of the Holy Spirit and we do so with a manual that tells us how to live, that tells us how to have the right mechanics to the swing so that things can go right, and that's God's design. We don't lead with our emotions. We lead with God's wisdom. And sometimes we feel things that are right, but a lot of times we feel things that are leading us astray. And because of that, we have to have a standard when it comes to these core relationships, specifically disciplines of a marriage, that stand over us. We have to have truths that stand over our lives. And when the world says, you fall in in love, and you fall out of love, and that you're the center of your own universe, the Bible says that there are things about this relationship thing that you have to get right for death to us part to be a reality in your life. And so what you have learned, you have to unlearn. And those things that are godly, you have to relearn because the definition of insanity takes place. And so here we go. What do you need to know, men? We're starting with us or me or you or you and I. Is that the grammatically correct way to say it? We're starting with the men first because that's what the Bible does in this discipline of marriage. And it starts with this idea that, men, you're the leaders of your home. I feel so posh just drinking from this Mario cup. That, men, you're the leader of your home. And when it comes to marriage, just like any organization, there has to be a head. When a company struggles, this is, this is what leadership looks like. There's, there's someone primarily to blame. When a company struggles, the CEO takes the blame. When a nation struggles or fails, it's time to elect a new president. When a sports team struggles, it's time to hire a new coach. When the military loses a battle, there has to be a general or highest-ranking officer who is to blame. 
and they ultimately take the blame, and you could say that that's not fair, right? but they ultimately take the blame because they're in authority. This takes place at the very beginning of Scripture. In the Bible, Adam and Eve, they, they take the bite of the fruit. Eve eats the, the, the bite first, the apple, the, the fruit first, and then Adam takes initial responsibility. God goes to Adam and not to Eve when he's calling out for responsibility to be had. Romans 5 tells us that because of man's sin, the whole race fell. There's this idea of headship right at the beginning in relationships. And the definition of leadership is to bear primary responsibility and to make particular impact. And so as we jump into this text, we're starting from the viewpoint of Scripture, not our feelings, that men have a very particular role in this reality of marriage where they are the leaders of their home. And they lead from a place, here's the second thing if you write things down, they lead from a place of covenant. This is when we talk about marriage at New Life, we talk about covenant. And so what we've said before is that marriage is not contractual like so many things in our life. Like every business deal that you've ever done and you've signed what? You've signed a contract. If you sold a home, you signed a contract. If you've renewed your status uh, in the working professional world for you know, the next five years for a company, you sign what? You sign a contract. And a contract is not a covenant. In fact, it's the opposite of a covenant. And we enter marriage into the idea of a contract, and a contract and a covenant are very, very different. Contracts can be rewritten if both parties change their minds on the terms. Contracts, write this down, contracts have beginning dates and end dates. Contracts are about negotiating terms that benefit me, and they're selfish in nature. A covenant is about giving of myself to you for your well-being, and it's about servanthood. Here's the main difference. Covenant is about your benefit. If I'm in a covenant with you, I'm looking at your best interest. A contract on the opposite end of the spectrum is about me and my benefit. And at the heart of a divorce is the understanding that marriage is a contract. I think I should get divorced. I think we should get divorced. I think we should start over because God wants me to be happy. And this contract needs to be rewritten or terminated. Covenant starts from this standpoint. I have your best interest in mind as the leader of the home, and I'm going to start from a place of servanthood, and we're going to go from there. At the heart of the logic of the phrase in a contract is me-centered thinking. So with that understanding, the Apostle Paul writes about marriage and about women's roles in marriage and men's roles in marriage, and it's in the book if you're going through the book with us. And here's what he says. A lot of us have heard of it. A lot of us have even been offended by it, but this Bible is the Bible, and it stands on itself, and here's what it says. Ephesians 5, 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their, in everything to their husbands. And here's where we start today, because husbands are the leaders of the home. Husbands, verse 25, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 
And in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. He says, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is, mystery is profound, and I'm saying that if it refers to Christ and the church, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the foundational text in all of scripture for what a marriage looks like. I don't even know how many times we've covered this text, but this is the primary text, kind of the umbrella that stands over the theology of marriage in the Bible. It starts at Genesis, and it just works its way through the Old and then the New Testament. That husbands, you have this innate God-designed role, and here's what it's not. It's not a role to be the boss. It's a role to be the head. The head of the covenant doesn't act like a boss because a boss does this. A boss is a much easier role, and it just delegates responsibilities. If you're a boss, you know that, right? You just, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. A head has a much larger responsibility to that, and I would just encourage you, if that's the way you've seen it and your marriage is failing, there should be a light bulb moment, right? That that's just not the way it works. Jesus doesn't simply delegate duties because the Bible talks about, and you just read it, that the idea first is that Christ is the head over all of us, and then we are the bride of Christ, and so there's this metaphor of marriage that really is that Christ is the head over all. Christ has headship over everything in our lives once we've been saved by his blood. And because he is the ultimate head, it's like he's the capital H in the narrative, and then husbands in your families, in your homes, you're the pastors of your homes, you're kind of the, the headship, but you're the little H. Jesus never got married, never had a girlfriend, but the Bible tells us that we are his bride. All of this is covenant language, and the Bible shows us how to live in this text, how to live out our marriages in a way that are exalting to him, where we can actually live really just a better godly life. And there are three core disciplines of marriage that I want to cover today. I would ask you that you write them down. I think this could save you if you are not married, anyone single in the first service. This has the capacity to save you a world of heartache. But there are three core disciplines of marriage that Paul talks about in this text. The first one is this. It's very chivalrous. It's this idea that husbands would have sacrificial love for their bride. I'm looking around the room. At the first service, I know a lot of you. And there are some things that I have a really good friend that's been helping me with a house project. And he said he read this chapter. I didn't plan on saying this, but I just saw him in church. He said he read this chapter. And, and in the chapter of the, the book for the men, it talks about sacrificial love through the context of dying to self. And it says that each, like the longer you're married, the more it's like death. And then he asked his wife, I won't use names, but he asked his wife, Rachel, he said, do you think that's, do you think that that's romantic, that you would, that marriage is like death? And she said, this is incredibly romantic. Thank you for sharing that being married to me for the past 20 years feels like death and murder and destruction. And that's what we want to do at New Life. We want to just build marriages up in that way. Uh, but the Bible talks about sacrificial loves. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's this willingness to sacrifice. And, and this is really 
the romantic aspect. There's nothing more romantic than a man who's saying, I will give everything for you. Even to the point of death, I will die to my will. I will die physically. I will put your needs before my own. Uh, Their author, Mike Mason, wrote in The Mystery of Marriage, love in marriage is like death. It wants all of us. It claims everything. It claims everything. It's this idea that, but now your will is as important or even more important in some situations than my own. That's the humility of that type of leadership. And the counterintuitive reality, and this this is interesting, and I want you to remember this, specifically men. The counterintuitive reality to this is those that take the call to die seriously are those who experience the most joy, have the most fulfilling marriages, and experience the most, most love. And so here's what it's not, the contrast. Death is not a doormat. Death to self doesn't mean that, you know, there are these issues in your relationship and you go, well, I got to die to myself and and I know that my spouse is really, you know, manipulative or, or there are these things that are going on that aren't being addressed from the past. But, you know, I died to myself and so I guess I have to just walk in this misery. No, that's not death at all. That's just stupidity. Death to self is saying, I love you despite you and praise God, hopefully you love me despite me because Jesus died in my place, I am going to put on this idea that that death is permanent, that death is sacrificial, and that my needs no longer come first, and I'm not gonna be a doormat, I'm gonna deal with issues because I'm gonna lead the home. But I'm gonna put your will and your best interest in mine even ahead of my own because I'm gonna die to myself just like Christ died for the church. Here's what else it means. It means that you sacrifice to the point of suffering. Sacrificing to the point of suffering because that's what Christ does for his church. When Christ gave himself up for his church, he didn't just die. Before he died, he suffered. And here's a quote that I love. Christ suffers with his bride. This is is going on today in our relationship with Christ. Christ suffers with his bride and Christ suffers for his bride. The apostle Paul, before he was Paul, was known as Saul and he was persecuting and murdering Christians. And he had heard the narrative, he didn't believe, and then Christ comes after he's already ascended, he, he comes in this, this vision to Saul, who's gonna shortly be Paul, and Paul's killing Christians, and what does he say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, what does he say? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? When, when you are going out and you are stoning and murdering those people who love me, who've been purchased by my blood, my body was broken for them, I rise from death so that they can have life, and when you go and you savagely murder them, it's not an offense just on them, it's like you're doing that to me because I am a groom who suffers for his bride and with his bride. That's the call to die, that it's not just death, it's just suffering, and in the suffering is oneness. And so, and so when your bride, men, when your bride suffers injustices, you suffer injustices. When your bride suffers past wounds, you suffer past wounds. When your bride suffers cruelty and disappointments in life, you suffer not just for her, but you suffer with her because the idea of the covenant is that the two become one. The two become one. And so you suffer as a means of sacrifice. 
And it takes emotional and spiritual maturity to walk that type of road together. Sacrifice means intercession. Write that down. The Bible tells us that Christ intercedes in prayer for his bride. I think it's in John 17. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he prays for himself. He prays for the 12. And then he makes this futuristic prayer for us. Those that are going to follow me in the future, those that are going to love me, those that are going to serve me, he prays for his later bride. And then when he finishes praying, he goes to the cross. And then he goes to the throne. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And the Bible tells us, I believe in Hebrews, that, that he is the great intercessor, that he is praying for his bride now before the Father, that he's lifting up our needs and he's a suffering Savior, he's a dying Savior, but he's a prayer warrior, he's, a, he's interceding on our behalf. And that's why we talk about things where if you came from a different background and there's language issues as far as what you say in church and what it means, when we say things like, do you know Christ as your personal Savior, what we're saying is that he knows you and it's your now desire and will to know him because he saved you and you follow him and you have this interconnected relationship that's emotionally available where he is praying for you on your behalf because that's the groom that he is. And the question would then be this, grooms, are you, men, are we praying for our wives? Are we putting our wives' needs first? Praying is a foundational aspect of our leadership. It's a foundational aspect of our covenant with our bride. What does our prayer list look like if we, if we brought it on stage? Of course, it's confidential, but if we brought it on stage, would it say anything more if we had one than, I pray for my wife that, you know, she, that she's happy or something like that? Are you those things that are foundational in our intercession and in our, in our suffering with them are they being put on display through this reality of prayer in our lives? That's what sacrificial love looks like in this text. The second thing we see in this text is that there's this sanctifying love. And sanctification just simply means that our road to holiness is like a roller coaster that has bumps and turns it goes up and then it goes down, but it puts us on this trajectory as we follow Christ, we become more and more and more like him through this process of sanctification before we meet him face to face in eternity. And this sanctification, there are things that happen, these roadblocks that take place, these relationships that are fractured in our life that actually work to make us more like Christ and that's the point. And so the Bible talks about, in Ephesians 5, this idea that we sanctify our bride. And what does that look like? Or what does that even mean? Maybe you've read this text and you go, when it comes to that, I know what it means at least, even if I don't operate in it, for me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. But what does it mean that I actually, as a husband, have this role in sanctifying her? That in how I lead the home and how I love and how I serve her, that it actually increases her capacity to be holy before the Father. And this is kind of where there's this great separation between secular thought of marriage and biblical identity in marriage. And in this idea of sanctification is this one statement that we've said several times throughout the years, that the purpose of marriage has to be addressed. And one of the core foundational purposes of marriage is this idea of sanctification. And it's not to just make you happy. 
It's to make you holy, and marriage moves you towards holiness. Marriage puts that on display, and that our hearts are like a home. And by the time we get married, it's typically furnished with some nasty furniture. Anyone say single, maybe until like a longer stage of life than a lot of people around you? I got a friend in here, he was, he was single a little too long. I got another friend who teaches me golf lessons who desperately doesn't want to be single any longer. We've always had a heart for the single guy that comes over and eats all our food. But, but what's something you realize the longer that you're single, there's this functions to two approaches, right? Getting married too early, you're not ready. Getting married too late, then the, the cross you have to bear is that you've had plenty of time to fill up this metaphor of the home and the rooms of your home with a lot of furniture that takes the face of selfishness in your life. And so each road has its own cross to bear. But what marriage does is it reveals this idea that all of us struggle, that one sinner plus one sinner equals what? Two sinners that now have to exist in this idea of oneness. And the purpose of your marriage, this is going to just you know, blow everything you've heard out of the water as far as the secular idea of marriage. The purpose of your marriage is not that you're always happy. If you think you always have to be married or happy, you're going to end up in divorce court because it's just not going to happen. The purpose of your marriage is that you are loving like Christ and that you are pursuing holiness through the process of working out those kinks and doing life together. And so because our hearts are like a home, and the longer that we live in this home, the more nasty our furniture can accumulate in this house, marital love reveals rooms furnished with selfishness. Rooms filled with autonomy and self-will and self-centeredness and self-serving and self-exalting attributes. And the process of marriage is a sanctifying type of love. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The idea of sanctification and the bride is Christ first with us. That he is choosing to love the unlovable. I was reading this week and there's this thought that hit me. I read it and I want to share it with you. And it says this, and maybe you write stuff down. And and what's really frustrating is I think more women will write this down even though it's for the men. If you love someone only for their strengths... I'm going to say it again because I actually want you to write this down. I'm not looking, so I can't see the disobedience. Are you ready? If you love someone only for their strengths, then you actually don't love them. You just love that they make you feel good. This is sanctification. If you love someone only for their strengths, then you don't actually love them. You just love that they make you feel good. This is sanctifying love. The third one is this. There's this idea of, in Scripture, and it has to be carefully dissected because it sounds kind of weird. It sounds very much humanistic, but I'm going to define it. The third thing that Paul talks about in marriage is, for men specifically, is to love your wives with self-love. Self-love. Here's what he says. I'll read it again. He says, in the same way, husbands, you should love your wives Uh, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Here's where it, what it is not. It's not self-love that's narcissistic. It's love uh, that's sublime type of self-love in this text. And the idea, again, is oneness. <clears throat> that you are so interconnected over a period of time being married that you love your wife like yourself, like your own body. The way the text breaks it down, it's the same existential gravity that we take for granted in ourselves. Oneness defined as this, write it down. She is me. There's really no separation. This is the mystery in Genesis of marriage. That Adam and Eve lay together and the two what? The two become one flesh, that they're intertwined. So then every time there's a wedding, every pastor is gonna say, Right, what God has put together, let no man separate. There's this oneness that happens in marriage. And the reason you love them like you love yourself is because really, physically, emotionally, socially, there, there's this intertwined reality to this. And it's not narcissistic. It's literally just that these concepts are interwoven into your personhood. Have you ever noticed this, that the longer that people are married, the more they even, have you ever seen like couples that even look like each other? That they start to be around each other so much that their mannerisms and their sarcasm, and they still have their own personal identity, but the, the longer that I'm married, the more pessimistic I think I become because my wife is a no-nonsense personality. I went into marriage, I was really just a very positive person. Just kidding. I didn't plan on saying that. And now I look at you. No, just kidding. But you become like that person. You become like that person. And you love them like you love yourself. That's what Paul says. And so how do we answer the call? And what, what do we actually do? We have these three foundational theological positions that we hold to. And, and here's what the text talks about. The first one is this, that this foundational call to the theology of oneness is that you are committed to this person. That you are deeply, husbands, you are deeply committed to this person that you call your wife. That she has this security within her uh, ability to be a godly wife where she knows that there's gonna be good days, there's gonna be bad days, there's gonna be healthy communication, there's gonna be lack of communication, there's gonna be seasons where your teenagers are struggling, the stress is high, the young kids are in diapers, the date nights aren't always happening like you want them to, the job is stressful, you know, on and on it goes, but there's this foundation of commitment where she knows because you love Christ and Christ would never leave his bride that you would never leave yours and she walks in that security as a woman of God. There's a foundational commitment. Colossians 3.14 says, put on love. Put on love. It's, what, it's just what we do as leaders of our home. That we are firmly committed to what God has called us to do despite how we feel. That we're loving and cherishing our wives. Marriage that depends on being in love falls apart. There's no substitute for covenant plus commitment. We currently live in a world where 40% of children are going to go to bed tonight. 40% of children are going to go to bed tonight with no dad at home, period. And depending on where you live in America, that number jumps as high as 70 to 80%. The commitment breakdown is very real. 
And, and what we know is that depending on where you go to church and, and how you open or if you open your Bible in the church that you've come from, that a lot of the, what we just covered, even the text itself, is going to kind of have you know, some blackout marks on it when it's preached. There's going to be some hard things within the text of Ephesians 5 where the pastor is going to get up and it's going to say, we need to love each other. They're going to cover parts like that, but they're not going to cover those controversial topics that we've talked about today, like men actually being leaders of their home. And, and that there's actually going to be a definition to this idea of submission because it's not culturally popular to talk about it. But at New Life, regardless of even if people leave New Life because they're offended by the message, we're not going to change what the Bible says. We're going to stick to the word of God regardless of whether or not it's controversial. And so single men, there are, there are a lot of places you can go where you don't have to hear a message like this. But what I'm telling you is what the Bible says is that as you pursue this idea of marriage, you have to have commitment at the forefront. That there has to be some statistical change and differential between the way we operate as born-again believers and how the world operates. And one of the ways that we do that is we are committed that we take responsibility, that we man up, that we prepare to lead our home, that we love our wife as Christ loves the church. Practical change. How we spend our time, how we prioritize our life, the responsibilities that come from the word of God. That we're committed. That we're actually being leaders that have tender hearts and sacrificial mindsets. It practically plays out in this idea of fidelity that we're faithful to our brides, that they know that we'll never leave, and while we stay, we only have eyes for them. That this is what the groom does for his bride. This is how it actually plays out with Jesus, even as he goes to the cross. One core trait that defines Christ and his groom's status is that he's absolutely 100% faithful to his bride, regardless of what the bride does. Even though we fail him miserably sometimes, we can always count on the character and nature of Christ to be faithful to us. Everything about us in our language, in our schedule, in our passions, in our relationships says unequivocally, I will no matter what, this is the vow that starts the process, no matter what, I will be faithful to you because Christ has been faithful to me. That I will only have eyes for my bride. That I'm called, being called to answer, to answer the call to fidelity. Here's a more practical one. Communication. That when I actually lead my home and love my wife as Christ loves the church, this is going to blow your mind, men, that I actually spend time talking to her. And I've told you before, it's like I, I was raised by a pack of wolves. There are all these stereotypes about men that I crush for the good and the bad. For the bad, I, I can't fix anything and I'm not very manly. For the good, I'm the communicator and I drive my wife crazy. Right, how do you feel? How do you feel? How do you feel? She's like, I feel fine. Shut your mouth. That's, that's our relationship. How do you feel when you tell me to shut my mouth? Are you okay? Is everything okay? Right? <laughs> and so for us, it's a little different, but I have been at this a while, and I know that we are, in not a good way, or I'm not saying this is good because it's a bit dysfunctional in of itself in the way that I operate, 
but I know that we're the exception and not the rule, and the more common reality is stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, that there is a communication breakdown, and it is, just so you know, there's a little research here, the number one issues that wife has, wives have with their husbands, it should be no surprise, is there a lack of ability to communicate specifically in their capacity to what? You know? To listen. To hear them and to pay attention, to be attentive to their needs. Communication that incorporates, this is going to blow your mind, men, facts, but also feelings. Communication that listens, that talks, that shares, that uses metaphors to explain life if you have the capacity to think on that level, that emotionally connects with the bride. This is what Christ does with us and for us as he intercedes. This is what we're called to do. Communication, and here's like the most manly thing that we just want to just run in the face of this, of this stereotype. Communication that's vulnerable. Not just how was your day good. You know, I'm going to watch the game on on the recliner, that communication isn't just about facts, but it's about feelings. Communication, it says, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, this is what I'm going through, how are you doing? And in that, there's this bonding agent that takes place. Commitment, fidelity, communication, elevation. This was in the text. There's this story about Winston Churchill, if you like history. And Winston Churchill was this gruff character. There's actually a, a really good long movie about him that came out a few years ago. But he was asked, I think, I think towards the end of his career, uh, he was asked this question. He's asked, if you could not be with, if you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? And if you read the text, you already know the answer. Churchill says this, the most romantic brownie point, a winning, award-winning statement. He says, if I could not be who I am, who I would like to be is Lady Churchill's second husband. Aw, right? I never would have thought of that answer. He's an old man at this point. He's bald. He's short. He's lacking a lot of appeal physically. But he knows how to be a wordsmith. And so he understands that to elevate his bride publicly and privately fills her cup. I I would highly suspect that when they went home that night, she didn't say, why did you say that about me? Why did you do that? No, she's feeling honored by that. And that's the way it should work. On a very practical level, men, as a safeguard, we're supposed to elevate our spouse, right? We talk about, we deal with conflict in the home, but outside of the home specifically, here's just a word of wisdom for you, 20 years in myself, specifically, specifically in your peripheral relationships, elevate your wife. And if you struggle elevating your wife, here's something that you never do. Never tear down your wife to another woman, ever, ever. All sorts of problems that could result from that. Elevate your wives. Here's the here's last practical step. All right, time. Answering the call to, to biblical masculinity and fatherhood, and or more specifically to, to, to the role of the husband. Time, there's no substitute for this idea of time. Major research factor in marital stability and happiness is satisfaction, is time spent together. Time that's creative time that's marked on the calendar, time that your bride knows is coming because it's telling her that you care. And then with that time, there's this little slash that you see on the screen from a, you know, just from an overflow of that, if you're, if you're wondering why your romantic life is terrible, 
from an overflow of creative, planned out, thoughtful communication, fidelity, commitment, elevation, should flow, right, should flow, if two people are loving Jesus together, this idea of romance. That this romance flows from this type of relationship. This is how you have lifelong, long-term, 20 years in, 30 years in, 40 years in, 50 years in, a romantic type of love for your spouse. I told you before in church, I think the last time we talked about this topic, that they've researched infatuation, and the longest, do you remember the answer to this? The longest that they can find that infatuation lasts is 18 months. That's best case scenario, that after 18 months, if your house is built on sand, and it's just about how they make you feel, if it's just about, you know, the physical aspects of the things that you're doing before you're married, that there's going to be this moment where you've played house and you've acted like you're in love when really you're just in lust, that after 18 months, if the house is built on sand, it's going to fall apart. If you want to know, here's like this secret ingredient. This is free of charge. You can take this home with you, man. If you want to know how you have long-lasting romance in your relationship, here is the secret sauce. Here's the key ingredient, that they are your absolute best friend. That the time, the quality time, and the quantity time that you spend together doing life together overflows in naturally into this romantic type of relationship that has this foundation to it. That the friendship is the foundation of the home. And when there are cracks in the foundation and you skip that process, it can look perfect on that second level, but it's only a matter of time before it crumbles. That that lasting romance in the relationship is built on friendship first, deep, authentic friendship where there's humor, where there's communication, where there's even sarcasm, where you share those things that are going on in your life with your spouse. And what happens is we'll close with this because I feel like we need to cover some singleness too, and this is gonna take like two minutes. This is free of charge. Here's why it goes bad because culturally everything is standing in direct opposition to this reality. That culturally, the first thing you do is you have this romantic period of time in your relationship where you can feel secure in the fact that you're needed in a physical level, and so you, you, you move in together, or maybe you don't even wait that long, you know, just within a short period of time, you're already having sex, and then you wonder after 18 months when the rubber meets the road why things are so incredibly difficult because there's no foundation there. This is why we walk through this process of marriage with couples and we tell them, Stay pure. The Bible says to stay pure, but stay pure for a very practical reason. This is a house built on sand if you don't take this step. If you put the cart before the horse, you're going to pay later. You have to put the time in, and you have to actually see. And what happens in this idea of courtship and this idea of dating with some purity attached to it is what happens is you actually get to know the person that you're already going to get to know once you're married and you're gonna actually have a realistic view of who this person is. And then from that foundation of time pouring into that other person, there should be this romance that develops and plays out in the marriage covenant. Christ puts all of this on display for us in his relationship with us. He loves us and he serves us and he pours into us, and he sticks closer than a friend. 
all of this stems from this idea that Christ loves us first and that he saves us first. And because he loves us and because he sanctifies us, it overflows into our relationship with our spouse. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this discipline of marriage. Just ask that we could take some of these ideas as we read the literature our own this week. We could apply them to our lives. We can apply them to our relationships and our marriages. And that we can know you and love you and serve you first as we serve our spouse. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for rising from death so that we can have life. We pray all of this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.